Well, as we kick off this series, I, I think the one thing we all realize in this room uh, is that we all understand the pressure of spinning so many plates and trying to keep them all up and all spinning and not drop any of them. And whether it's in a work context or whether it's in your family context, whether in your personal relationships, your marriage, you name it, we all are trying to uh, navigate through this life and the pressures are immense. And what do we do with that pressure inside of us? Uh, this is not only Mother's Day, it's also our baby dedication weekend. And we dedicated babies uh, last night, and we have several more uh, next hour as well. And I tell you, last night, it was, uh, it was amazing, the energy in this room. I like to call it energy. Uh, maybe you would frame it as screaming kids in the room. Uh, but I tell you, it was amazing that these kids were in the room were dedicating uh, these, these precious gifts. And, uh, and in the middle of chaos, you know, I had this moment as it brought me back to, you know, parenting to 11 and 7-year-olds is different than parenting to, you know, one 2-year-old uh, completely uh, and in different realms. And there's different pressures that come with different ages. And especially uh, uh, my, my oldest is going into... Uh, uh, junior high, and as I was taking to her soccer game, she saw some boys playing on a field as we were at a stoplight, and she goes, ooh, he doesn't have his shirt on. I'm like, stop looking. What's up with that? But I'm now entering that phase of parenting, and I don't like it. Right? We all get the pressures of life, and so how do we handle the pressures of life? There's a news story that hit the headlines this past week, and maybe you caught it it was about this, this mom, this lady, who emerged after 11 years of disappearing. And the story started to roll out that 11 years ago, she was just having a hard season of life. She was going through a divorce. She received some bad financial news. And she went to a park one day. I mean, just one day, she went to a park. She found a bench. She sat on this bench, and she started to sob. The pressure was overwhelming. And I think we've all been in those moments where it's just, what do I do with this pressure? And how do I handle this pressure? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And she found herself in that moment. And all of a sudden, uh, several strangers came passing by. She didn't know them. And they said to her, hey, we're hitchhiking to Florida. Why don't you come with us? And in that moment, she left dinner to thawn on the, the kitchen table. She left her car parked at the park. She didn't make one phone call. She said, okay. And she left her entire world behind her and went with these people. And 11 years later, she finally emerged. I mean, her husband, her kids all thought she was dead. Her family thought she was dead. Her friends thought she was dead. And as I followed this story, I thought about, you know, like how dare her I mean, I almost got angry. Like, how could a mom, how could a parent just walk away from her kids and not leave a note, not leave a text message, not leave anything, just walk away? How in the world? But then as I started to reflect a little bit more, I started to realize that I've had moments where I thought about the what if. What if I could just start over? What if I could just roll back time? What if I could just leap back 20 years? What would I do differently? What, what, what if I could just go from here and start all over again? Have you ever had those thoughts before? I'm sure you have. The difference is, you know, there's a big leap from having a quick thought to acting on the thought. And I'm sure that day, 11 years ago, 
as she drove to the park. She had no clue that she would actually act on the thought of, I wonder if I could start over. But in that moment, that pressure was so immense that she decided to start over. You see, we all live in this pressurized world, and probably one of the the most significant, greatest pressures we all deal with is this pressure called anxiety. And I, uh, I, I, I read uh, multiple different definitions for anxiety, but I thought that this was the best one. It says this, anxiety is this irrational fear towards something completely undefined. And you think about that, this irrational fear about something in the future, about these what-if scenarios. And I think about this mom who sat there on a park bench thinking about all the what-ifs as her marriage was falling apart, as financial pressures built. And I'm sure there's a litany of other pressures that she was thinking through. You see, anxiety is all about the what-if moments of life. What if I don't land this client or this proposal or this job? What if I get passed over? What if financially I can't make it? What if my marriage can't make it? What if my kids do not accomplish what I think they should accomplish or what I think they, that they have the skill set to do? What if my kids decide to go down their own path, not the path I want them to go down? What if the medical uh, results come back? What if I can't? It's what if. Anxiety is about this irrational fear of this undefined future. And usually we find ourselves leaning back, thinking through all the what-if scenarios. Some 2,000 years ago, Julius Caesar framed it this way. He says, as a rule, men worry more about what they can't see than about what they can. And that gets to the heartbeat of what anxiety is all about, what worry is all about, what angst is all about. Kierkegaard, the famed philosopher, in his book, The Concept of Dread, he gives this illustration about a man walking to, the, to an edge of a cliff or a tall building. And he talked about this experience where in this moment that you truly have this choice, you have the power and you have the control, you have this fear of falling over the edge but yet you actually think to yourself, I wonder what it would feel like to fall over the edge. And he calls that the concept of dread. And he takes it another step uh, uh, further when he talks about it's this dizziness of freedom where you're standing in the moment going, I'm fearful that I will fall over, but yet I could choose to fall over. But you know that once you take a step off that cliff, now you're not in power. Now you're not in control. So you want to remain in control, but you want to control the action of stepping over. But yet you don't want to lose control. And he tied this whole thought all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3 about Adam and Eve in the garden with the fruit. When God said, here's the tree, don't eat from it. But you can, but don't. Because I said don't, but I'm going to give you the freedom to choose. There's many different ways you could approach kind of his thought processes, but when you think about the essential kind of core piece of it, it gets to the heart of anxiety where we want to control and have power of our future, but in all reality, like that man standing on the edge of that cliff, in all reality, if you took a step over that cliff, you, you really do not have power or control. The dizziness of freedom I read a hair's poll 
that said 70% of all Americans have anxiety or they worry about how they spend their time. Do you find yourself doing that? You have all these responsibilities. You have all these things to do and you look at your, your day and you try to fit everything into your day. I was dropping uh, my youngest off at a birthday party Saturday. My wife had a speaking engagement yesterday, so she was gone for most of the day. So I was getting ready for weekend services and playing super dad. And so I was uh, running Claire to this birthday party. And as I was walking into this, this uh, uh, business, it was, it was a bead party. I never knew there were so many different types of beads. Like, it's a thing. And so I'm walking into this bead thing. And uh, uh, dad was walking out, another dad was walking in, and they had this quick conversation that I overheard. And what I'm surmising is they saw each other earlier in the day dropping kids off. And one of the dads said, hey, you're a professional uh, uh, errand runner today or something like that. And as he's dropping uh, his daughter off and they kind of laugh back and forth. And I'm like, yeah, I'm doing the same thing. I'm trying to work. I'm trying to get ready for the weekend and I'm dropping kids off. And luckily it rained, so lacrosse got canceled. So I was able to scrub that from my, my list. Friday, I took Kira to her soccer game, and, and uh, uh, I realized I had so many emails to try to get through from the week. I try to stay on top of them. I just got backed up, and so I just started thinking about, as I was driving to her soccer game Friday, that I had about 25 minutes before the game started to do email, and then I was going to be self-disciplined and put my phone away while she was playing, but then I realized, hey, I have another 15 minutes at halftime. And then the coach always talks to the girls after the game, another about 15 minutes. And I maximized every minute of that soccer game. My thumbs couldn't type any faster. I was just flying through. Right? We, we have anxiety about how we spend our time. But the danger with anxiety is this. Our bodies are so wonderfully made that God wired within us this fight or flight response, right? To a tangible, rational fear. I mean, you, you, you turn back the, the time 2,000 years ago, if a lion was chasing you, I'm sure it would be more flight than fight, unless you're really aggressive, right? Like your body responds to those moments of fear, but even in our today's context, there's these moments of fear, and when you click into fear, your body starts to uh, operate in a different way. You start breathing at a more rapid pace. Why? Because your, your, your body is screaming for more oxygen to get into your blood. Your heart starts to increase so it can pump more blood with more oxygen into not every area of your body because you see in your flight or fight response, your body starts shutting down different parts of your body and your heart will send blood only to your major muscle groups. Your, your pupils dilate, your jaw uh, tenses, and you get ready to fight or flight. It's what happens in moments of fear. I went on a bike ride Friday, and uh, I, I went from my house here in Summit uh, out to Berkeley Heights. And this is the best way I had this ana- analogy uh, kind of come to my brain as I was riding on River Road. Like, I'm trying to think about, how, you know, what the experience is like riding your bike in New Jersey. And uh, I don't know, if you, do you remember that great 1980s video game, Frogger? Okay, that, that's riding your road bike in New Jersey. You're just trying to survive. And especially when it comes to minivans, I tell you, I almost got wiped out by two minivans. I'm not a hater of minivans. I'm just telling you. 
Uh, wow, the minivans almost took me out. But there was this one stretch of road where I was uh, on this rapid descent, and I was going 30 miles an hour on a road bike, and that's crazy in of itself. But on New Jersey roads where they have overachieved in the area of potholes, uh, like I was, I was in that fear response. I felt my heart, and it was beyond because I was on a descent. Like it was beyond like working hard. My my heart rate started to increase. I was taking in more air. My major muscle groups, I was tensing up. My pupils dilated. My, my jaw tenses. I was just thinking about going down this hill, going down. If I hit one pothole wrong, I'm gone. I was thinking, like, what's going to happen? My, my tire explode. My wheel come off the rim. Like, there's all these things. And what if, like, a deer or a raccoon or a turkey or something jumps in front of me? You know, I'm just like, I just want to make it to the bottom. You see, it's this powerful response to a rational fear. But what happens when it's an irrational fear? Our body still responds the same way, doesn't it? That's why anxiety disorders in this country, over 18% of adults have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And that's just the adults that have come in to say, I think I, I, think I need help. I think I, I have a problem. I think there's something within me. I think, please, I wonder how many adults have an anxiety disorder and they've just never been diagnosed. There's moments where I think it's me. I've never been diagnosed, but I find myself laying in bed at night, heart beating, taking deep breaths. You see... Our body responds physically in the same way, whether rational or irrational. And so how do we handle the worries of life? How do we handle the anxieties of life? How do we navigate through this life, the pressures of this life? Well, Jesus gives us a great, great solution to handling worry or handling anxiety. And he's going to actually teach on this. And it's an amazing moment in Matthew chapter 6. And uh, when we kind of pull out a little bit, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe you've heard of this sermon, or maybe you've even wondered, why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? Well, back in November, a group of us went to Israel, and we actually visited the place where they think Jesus gave this uh, uh, famous message. It's the longest recorded message in the New Testament from Jesus. And uh, here's a picture. And uh, the picture doesn't really do it justice, but it's this pretty uh, steep decline down from kind of a top of a, this hill down into the Sea of Galilee. And it's beautiful. And this is where they think Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. And so in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is going to teach through a whole uh, a list of just different, just practical life issues to navigate in your Christian life. He's going to talk about marriage and the importance of marriage and that relationship. He's going to teach on how you treat your enemies and to turn your other cheek and what to do about money and how you should view money and how you should handle money. He's going to teach on how to pray and the importance of prayer. He's going to teach through the Beatitudes, and we're actually going to do a whole series this summer on the Beatitudes. He's going to hit on so many just different practical life pieces. And right in the middle of chapter 6, it's like he takes a time out. 
I'm sure as he's teaching, 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 he's looking at all these different men and women and, and children in the eyes, and, and probably as he's teaching through money and marriage and anger and enemies and all of these practical life issues, I wonder if he could just tell that people's breathing was getting deeper and their heart were racing as the pressure and the anxiety and the worry mounted. And it's like he took a time out, and in Matthew chapter 6, he says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Now, it's easy to stop in this verse, and I've heard some good-hearted Christians uh, kind of say this to, uh, to people before. Hey, the Bible says don't worry. It's like you put a period there. Maybe you've heard that. You know, hey, the Bible says don't worry, period. Well, there's not a period right there. And Jesus is going to get into what we do with worry or what we do with anxiety and how to handle it. And there's an appropriate worry, there's an appropriate anxiety, but there's also an inappropriate worry and an inappropriate anxiety. So Jesus is going to give us some examples. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry or do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or drink about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. And he's talking about, guess what? In your life, there's all these different worries. And for them, 2,000 years ago, just the basic necessities of life, like food, was a huge worry. They weren't going to Costco and buying a year's supply of lettuce. Right? They, they just couldn't do that. Every day, they woke up and they had to go, where's food coming for today? And how are we going to get food for today? And they didn't have refrigerators or freezers. Food was a big need for them. And so I, I bring it 2,000 years later into our context, and maybe a, a more applicable you know, statement instead of food and clothing, maybe it's retirement, your 401k, your stocks, your investments. You know, that would fit this context for us today. And Jesus said, hey, don't worry about it. Isn't life, the big bucket of life, isn't life more important than your investments? Well, he's going to give an example. He goes on. He goes, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And again, just imagine he's sitting on this hillside. I'm sure, you know, it's like, hey, the birds, and there's birds everywhere. It's like, yeah, that bird over there. Aren't you more valuable than that bird? Because every day that bird has to go out and find their food. Birds aren't like farmers where, you know, birds aren't planting what crops to plant, what crops not to plant, and what season, and uh, what's the weather like, and what if there's a record harvest, and where to store the grain. Every day a bird just goes out. My youngest came home with a school project. It was kind of underneath this going green uh, type of concept, and so we did it together, and it was a piece of cardboard, that uh, she had to cut out in the shape of a heart. And we took that piece of cardboard and then we, uh, we, we, we covered it with Crisco, which was disgusting on both sides. And then we pushed bird seed into it and became a bird feeder. And so we did this together and we went outside to hang that bird feeder outside. And what's been hilarious watching it are the birds trying to eat from it because every time they try to eat from it, it turns in circles. <laughs> So now we're making our birds in our backyards kind of neurotic. It's hilarious, uh, but they're figuring it out. But it's like this bird feeding, and you watch the, these birds every day. It's about today. How do I eat today? How do I find food today? 
And Jesus is like, hey, don't you realize these birds, every day they find food. God feeds the birds. And aren't you more valuable than a bird? Well, he continues on. He goes, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. I mean, New Jersey in the springtime is spectacular. I I watched our tulips come up again. I mean, they shoot through the dirt. And all of a sudden, the flower petals and the colors, they're beautiful. On my bike ride Friday, all the dogwood trees are coming out. I mean, it's spectacular. And again, you think about Jesus sitting on this hillside. And he's pointing, hey, see all those wild flowers that are covering the hillside. Every season, every year, these flowers come back up. They come back up. But then Jesus also ties it into Solomon. And for that Jewish culture, that Jewish audience, I mean, this is King Solomon. The wealthiest man, the wisest man, but beyond his wealth and his wisdom, he built the first temple. Jesus is like, even Solomon and all of his wealth and what he could purchase and how he clothed himself, the flowers are still more beautiful than that. And aren't you more valuable than a flower? And he takes it one step further. He says, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, or will he not much more clothe you? So we've gone from birds to flowers, now to grass. It's like, yeah, the grass, you know the grass that grows up every year? You cut it down, you dry it out, and you use it for fire. And grass grows up, you cut it down, you dry it out, you use it for fire. It grows up, you cut it down. And aren't you much more valuable than grass? And God makes sure the grass grows for one purpose, for fire. But then Jesus asks a question. You of little faith? And I love that it's a question, not a statement. Because it would be so much different if he would have just paused and said, You of little faith! Exclamation point. But he asks this question. You of little faith? Don't you believe that the, the one true God, don't you believe that the God, the creator of the universe, don't you believe God, the all-powerful Yahweh, don't you believe that God can provide for your needs? Can't you trust that God will care for you? If he cares for the birds and he cares for the flowers and he cares for grass, don't you think God's going to care for you? Don't you think God's going to show up in your time of need? Don't you think that God will provide for you exactly what you need? If God cares for everything else, don't you think he's going to care for you? Man, you got to trust. you got to trust. And it's interesting through this teaching that Jesus is doing, he chooses to use a very personal name for God. Did you catch it? Your heavenly Father. Don't you think that God, not this some way up there in the sky, 
detached from you, this powerful guy with a lightning bolt in his fist waiting to zap you. Now this personal father who desires to have a relationship with you, who desires to provide for you, who desires to care for you, who desires to walk with you, who desires to fill your needs with exactly what you need, maybe not what you think you need, but what you really need in that moment. Don't you think that God's going to be there for you? But then he goes on. He goes, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear for the pagans? And that might feel like this very harsh uh, uh, label that he puts on people. Like if you walked up to someone today and said, oh yeah, you're a pagan. Like that wouldn't go over well. But what Jesus was saying is a pagan was just everyone else that didn't believe in the one true God. And for this Jewish audience and culture, they understood what pagan meant. Because everyone else worshipped many, many, many gods. And they'd run from temple to temple to temple just to make sure that they appeased all the gods just in case maybe they missed something. They even had a temple for the unknown god just in case they missed one. And he's like, hey, all these pagans, they're running around and they're trying to appease all these other gods and they're not even sure that, that they have all the gods. So they have one just the in case temple. But you believe in the one true God the author and perfecter, the creator. You believe in him. For the pagans run after all these things. You shouldn't. They are, but why are you? And your heavenly father, here it it is again, this very personal, personal moment. But God the Father knows that you need them. But God Your heavenly father will provide for you. God, the heavenly father who takes care of the birds and the flowers and grass is going to care for you. In the middle of all these kind of illustrations, I actually skipped a verse. Maybe you caught it. It's verse 27. Because in the middle of all of these, Jesus asks this question which really leads to the solution The question he asks is, can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Now, the Greek word for kind of hour can be translated one of two ways. One, it could be translated as a unit of time. In in the NIV translation, that's how it translates it. Can you add a single hour to your life? But there's another way it can be translated. It can be translated as a unit of measurement, It's what was uh, termed a cubit. And it came from literally, um, they would use their arm from the the top of their middle finger to their elbow. They would measure things like that. And which is great if if you use the same arm. But if you use different arms, that building could look a little different. But out of that, they came up with a cubit, which turned out to be 18 inches. And Jesus is like, either way you translate it, it's the same thought. Hey, can you add an hour to your life? Can you add 18 inches to your stature? And I think within this question, Jesus was making this powerful statement. No, you can't. No one can. 2,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, 2,000 years in the future. No, you can't add time, and you can't add 18 inches to your height. Even if you stand with really, really good posture. 18 inches? I mean, I would love that. 
That'd be great. And Jesus was saying, guess what? God can. For God, that's, that's, not, that's not difficult. For God, that's just like, oh, what am I going to do today? Oh, add an hour. We'll move on. Well, then Jesus gives the solution to anxiety, to worry. But seek first his kingdom. See, that word seek is this action word where we need to seek who? God. And place God as number one in our lives. You see, so many times anxiety issues, you know, they, they're framed in a, a social framework or a physical framework, you know, how our bodies deal with anxiety, a philosophical framework like Kierkegaard. But Jesus is saying, you know what? This, this, this whole worry, anxiety issue is really a theological issue. Are you trusting God to provide for all of your what-ifs? Are you trusting God that he'll give you what you need for today? Are you trusting that God no matter the circumstances, will show up for you and provide what you need. Maybe not what you think you need, but provide what you need. Are you trusting that God, the creator almighty, cares for you that deeply? See, I think about all my anxieties as I lay up late at night and wake up during the night and wake up in the morning with my brain uh, rushing through a list of thoughts. And honestly, it comes down to me trying to control the things in my future that really are outside of my control. And me trying to leverage my power into the future. And all these what-ifs, in all reality, God's saying, hey, what, why are you worrying about that? Worry about today. You see, when we seek first his kingdom, and his kingdom is not just future, it's today. It's the life that we've been given to live when we start realizing that God wants us to do something with our lives today for his kingdom, and when we seek him first, in order of importance, God number one. I say continually that that we all have a number one slot, and we have someone or something in that number one slot. The question is, who is it or what is it? And Jesus is saying, when you put God number one and you really believe that God is number one in your life, when you seek first his kingdom, and he goes on to say, and his righteousness, and in that moment, in Matthew chapter 6, no one really fully realized what Jesus had come to do, and what he was going to do on the cross. But Jesus knew, because Jesus closes the gap. For us to receive God's righteousness, it comes through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For us to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father, it comes through Jesus Christ. And I think in that moment, Jesus shared that thought, and he's like, yeah, you guys don't realize it yet, but this is why I'm here, and this is what I've come to do. His righteousness. And all these things will give him to you as well. And then he ends his entire moment. And he's going to get back into how to live your life and what to do and how to interact with people. And he's going to get back into it. 
But he ends with this thought. He goes, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. That's anxiety. That's worry. That's angst. That's the what ifs. That's the what ifs that keep our heart racing. Keep us breathing at a rapid pace. Keeps, keeps us up late at night. He says, hey, don't, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You see, so if anyone has ever said to you, well, don't worry, the Bible says don't worry. No, what Jesus is saying is, don't worry about tomorrow. Worry about today. Get through today. God will provide for you tomorrow. And God will provide for you for the next day. And God will provide for you the next week and the next month and next year. There's a book in the Old Testament. uh, It's called Lamentations. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that book. Or maybe you've heard the book and you started to read it and you realize it's not a real happy book. (laughs) It's a book of lament, right? It's just that book where uh, it's a pretty heavy book. But within this book of lament... The author, Jeremiah, was writing this in a pretty dark, intense season of life. You see, uh, Babylon had come in and laid siege to Jerusalem. It's like everything you read in history. They would surround a city and they would just camp out there until the city would run out of water and food and supplies until they had to give up. And Babylon had come in and laid siege. I mean, the conditions inside of Jerusalem was just horrific. People were starving to death. And, you know, people in those moments of life do the unthinkable. And then Babylon came in and they took the people and they took them into slavery and they leveled the temple. And Jeremiah had witnessed all of this and great friends that had passed away and the despair and the angst about the future as they were now slaves to a foreign power again. In the midst of this moment of life, he wrote these words. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions or mercies never fail. They are new every morning and great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I'll wait for him. And I think about Jesus in that moment where he brought this whole teaching on anxiety and worry down. He says, hey, don't worry about tomorrow. For today has enough worries. I wonder if Jesus was thinking back through Jeremiah's words. Going, hey, God is your portion. And every morning he will give you what you need to make it through that day. And every morning his compassions, his mercies will be new. And you will have enough for that day. So don't worry about next week. Don't worry about next month. Focus on today. And God will give you enough for today. And he will give you enough for tomorrow. And he will give you enough for the next day. And he will give you enough for the next day. 
So when you feel this anxiety welling up within you about all the what ifs in life, pull it back down and say, God, just today, I need your portion for today. And that's my challenge for all of you. I'm not sure your exact pressures, your exact worries, the exact anxieties that you're navigating through. And maybe for you, it's just a marriage issue. And you find yourself laying there thinking about, can it last another week? Can it last another month? Can, can I last another? And I want you to lay in that moment and say, God, give me what I need for today. God, I need your portion for today. And when you wake up the next morning, that needs to be your prayer. God, help me today navigate through my marriage today. Maybe it's a work issue. And you find yourself, keep thinking about the next week, the next month, the next year, and there's all these worries and all these concerns. And my encouragement for you is, Maybe you just start praying, saying, God, God, I don't know what's coming the next week, the next month, the next year. But today, give me what I need to make it through today. You see, there's two important pieces within Jesus' teaching that sometimes people can easily kind of get wrong. One is this. One is that that, uh, we shouldn't be concerned about the future. You know, I, I took the food and clothing and talked about our retirement. And it's easy to say, oh, yeah, I shouldn't be concerned at all about it. I'm just going to uh, not save for the future because the Bible says I shouldn't. No, the Bible doesn't say that. And you know what Jesus said? Is, Isn't life more important than? Food and clothing is still very important. But is there something more important than that? And the second thing is this. I've heard people say, well, yeah, I really shouldn't be concerned about work because doesn't Matthew 6 talk about that? No, the birds worked every day. They worked every day. Man, my poor birds in my backyard are working every day, right? (laughs) They're overachieving on this poor little thing. No, what Jesus is saying is don't worry about work. Don't worry about it. Because in all reality, most of the things you're worrying about aren't in your control anyway. Think about that. I don't know your anxiety. I don't know your worry. But my encouragement for you is this. When you feel that irrational fear of the undefined future start to overwhelm you, maybe you just pause and You pray the prayer Jeremiah prayed. God, you are my portion. And every morning, every morning, you're going to give me what I need for today. And maybe you start trusting in the God of this universe, the author of creation, that he will care for you. Why? Because he cares for a bird, and he cares for a flower, and he cares for grass. And guess what? He cares for you. And he'll provide you exactly what you need to make it through that day. Let me pray. Lord, I know that personally for me that this message is as much for me as anyone. As I get caught up on the what ifs of the future, 
and they become overwhelming. And Lord, it is my commitment to leave those worries into your hands and know that you'll provide what I need for today. And Lord, I pray for everyone here today that they'll know how much you care for them individually as a heavenly father who provides and that your, your portion, that your mercies, that your compassion is sufficient to help every one of us through each day. In your name I pray, amen. I hope you have an amazing week and happy Mother's Day.